Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Morgan Williams, Jr. Morgan is an assistant professor of economics at Barnard College. Morgan, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you for having me, Jen. Today, we're going to talk about your research on how hiring more police officers affects local crime outcomes. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Oh, sure thing. So thank you again for having me. And I'm an economist. And so uh, one thing I like to kind of say to people when I describe what it is that I work on is the fact that, well, I kind of consider myself an economist and scholar of race first and pretty much everything else second. And so at the moment, I kind of see much of my research agenda kind of thinking about the nature of racial disparities through the prism of criminal justice. And so we know that violence and crime can have very serious and and kind of detrimental societal costs that, you know, could look very different from one community to the next. No shortage of research has shown that economic development is deeply affected by this health, cognitive development, you know, the list goes on. And so in many ways, I think that many of us who are students of the economics of crime in some way always kind of go back to that 1968 Becker model, which kind of gives us some insight on the nature in which we can kind of have a bit of a say on the prevalence of crime in many of our communities. And so in reading through some of that work, I always kind of said to myself, well, okay, well, there, you know, we certainly can affect certain policy parameters, like the probability of apprehension and, and also fines and, and do those things that can allow for us to enjoy certain crime rates. But is that true across various types of criminal behaviors? Is it equally true for, say, robbery as it is for homicide to the extent that police and the courts matter and are major actors in kind of determining some of the outcomes that we're interested in. Well, are they efficient? You know, are there any collateral costs? Can they have additional criminogenic effects that we're not considering? Are beliefs important? Stereotypes? These are things that all kind of influence the types of criminal behavior that we see and also what type of criminal behavior we focus on. And so as a result, you know, you kind of step away from some of that work and you say to yourself, okay, well, these are certain ways to think about it. There might be other ways to think about it. In fact, there might even be other policy interventions that we might want to consider. So, you know, you might want to think about things like gun control policy. You might want to think about other types of interventions that can be pretty, you know, important in determining the nature of, say, like homicide or some other type of criminal behavior in ways in which maybe we didn't foresee. So your paper is titled Police Force Size and Civilian Race. It's co-authored with Aaron Chelfin, Ben Hansen, and Emily Weisburst. And last I checked, it's been conditionally accepted at AER Insights. Is that right? That is correct. Excellent. So we are obviously in the midst of a serious national conversation about the role of police in communities. And this paper contributes directly to that policy conversation. So what are the mechanisms through which we might expect that expanding or shrinking police forces might affect crime outcomes? It's a great question, right? And luckily for us, uh, we were able to lean on a very robust and growing literature that seems to be suggesting that increasing the police force size can have very important ramifications for criminal outcomes. And so uh, you can obviously go back to Steve Levitt's work in 1997 that kind of linked local and state electoral cycles to police staffing levels, and which found significant reductions in violent crime. Now, Justin McCurry didn't reply to that work and you know, said maybe the inference isn't quite right, but Steve's reply seemed to be very convincing when he uses firefighters as an instrument as opposed to leaning on the variation that might be attributable to, say, the local and state electoral cycles. And so that's kind of like one paper, right? But then we also have a host of literature that's taken a look 
at the uh, COPS grants or the Community-Oriented Policing Services Offices grants, which you'd be surprised how many people just don't realize that these COPS grants or the COPS office was established under the 1994 crime bill. And so with that bill, the goal was pretty much as it seems was to get more, pretty much more police on the streets of cities throughout the country. Essentially, what they do is they issue out block grants. I believe about more than half of them are pretty much hiring grants. So being able to beef up on one officers and other personnel, but also the ability to invest in non-hiring elements of policing as well. So technology, other kind of targeted crime initiatives, things that are all kind of contributing to the nature of public safety. And so with those grants, there's been a good bit of work starting back with Evans and Owens in 2007, which again kind of exploited the nature of these grants or the size of these grants in order to be able to say a little bit more about policing staffing levels conditional on fixed effects and the ability to kind of account for some of those other things that might be, you know, differ across agencies, but also, you know, might be some common shocks that may be existing during this time period for which they're looking. And so they also ended up finding that, you know, there seems to be a reduction in burglaries, auto theft, robbery, aggravated assault, and probably more measured evidence on murder as well. So that was kind of a very good sign that this literature seems to be going in the right direction. Now, There's been subsequent work that's also kind of exploited these COPS grants, either in very similar ways or maybe in slightly different quasi-experimental ways. And so Emily Weisburst, my uh, co-author, has also kind of used a very similar type of methodology. And in doing so, she was able to kind of capture other aspects of the hiring process and also kind of look at a later period in in order to be able to kind of come to a similar conclusion about reductions in in violent crime and property crime. I think that she she found like a a reduction in violent crime of about 13% and a reduction in property crime about 7%. Now, one thing that I probably should back up and say in kind of discussing the COPS grants is that, you know, they pretty much were fairly prevalent during the Clinton administration, you know, heading to the late 90s. Pretty much anybody that wanted to apply for a grant did receive some funding. But there were concerns, started around the Bush administration, that much of the funding that was coming from COPS was actually supplanting the existing funding that would have been used to hire more COPS anyway. And so, Around the Bush administration, we do see the cop scripts tended to dry up a little bit. But heading back into the Obama administration and after the Great Recession led to some very important fiscal pressures on many law enforcement agencies throughout the country. The cop scripts were ramped back up. They were a bit more competitive. It was probably a bit more kind of leaning towards, you know, making sure that you know, police departments weren't hemorrhaging officers more than anything else. So, you know, that's kind of like a, a kind of quick recap or maybe some of the policy elements of cops. But then we've also seen other quasi-mental experimental approaches that I mentioned before. So uh, Steve Mello had a paper and Cook and uh, his colleagues also had a paper that kind of used a regression discontinuity design, kind of leveraging the fact that rating scores were used in this latter period in terms of issuing the COPS grants. And, and that also kind of allows for you to kind of have some credible estimates that are very consistent with many of the papers that I've seen, I've kind of mentioned before. I'll mention one more paper I will, that I'll kind of reserve maybe some of the discussion about the mechanics behind it. But the reason why we're kind of doing this is because we're merely interested in the fact that, well, perhaps, you know, there might be other reasons that, you know, police staffing levels might change, right? And so it could be simultaneity bias. If the police, you know, kind of foresee crime waves, or are they driven by crime waves? Is there an omitted variable problem? You know, well, there's another paper by my other call through Aaron Chalpin and uh, Justin McCrary that kind of makes a different argument in which they say, well, wait a minute. Well, maybe there might actually be a measurement error issue. Or maybe that measurement error issue, when it comes down to police employment levels, might be more important, right, in terms of the estimates that we're able to obtain. And so 
they argued that in addition to the presence of measurement error, there are also very important institutional constraints that exist in the manner in which you know, police departments are able to kind of ramp up hiring. It's not as if they could just say, you know what, I want 100 officers on the street tomorrow, snap their fingers and they're there. These things take time. It takes time to bring people into the academy. It takes time to train them. And it probably takes probably what, so I believe it was somewhere between six months to a year or longer in order to kind of get those cops on the street. And so they also take a similar approach in which they say, you know, let's kind of just look at two different measures of police employment. And they actually, you know, use a very similar instrumental variable strategy and find comparable results, but also find is that it seems as if many of the cities within their sample also suffer from under-policing according to the social welfare estimates. So we have this large literature that we were able to kind of lean on in order to be able to ask a very similar question uh, when it came down to race. Because, you know, one thing in which when you talk to people, many people kind of say, well, why does policing staff, staffing matter, you know, at least in the, in the name of public safety, why does it matter in different ways for, say, black and white communities? And so, you know, in my head, I, I could think of no, you know, a number of different reasons why that might be the case. It could be the case in terms of the benefit side that perhaps there just might be more opportunities to solve crime. And so it could just be the fact that, well, within the United States, you know, black Americans make up about 13% of the population, but over 50% of the homicides. So police are going to have more opportunities to kind of, in, you know, participate in crime reduction, perhaps in black communities. Uh, there's also kind of disproportionate levels of street vice that might exist across one community to the next. And it certainly is the case when you look at it across racial groups. And so with that difference in visible street vice, many of those markets, they kind of operate by different rules. If you have a dispute uh, within a market, say within a drug deal or something like that, it's not as if you can go to court and say, hey, officer, he stole my drugs. It's one of those things in which, you know, there obviously are other ways in which these types of disputes are kind of handled and ways that kind of escape our traditional market explanations. And so one of those explanations often been given around the crack cocaine epidemic and elsewhere has generally involved violence, right? And so to the extent that you have street vice that are, you know, have these very, you know, kind of robust and prevalent markets that are accompanied by violence again, and to the extent that they're kind of geographically concentrated within black communities, well, then that also kind of gives you another reason why uh, it could differ for black, you know, Americans versus white Americans. And there's also just the idea that perhaps there just could be some additional costs that we're not thinking about as well. We know certainly for sure that you know, there's a good bit of work on hotspot policing. And with it at hotspot policing, you know, we're starting to see that, again, you can kind of target you know, areas and space in successful ways in order to reduce criminal behavior. But you know, when you do that, there's also kind of changes in community perceptions or police legitimacy. And so with those changes in police legitimacy, that's something that could have you know, some larger kind of effects on, on the ability of, of law enforcement to kind of affect crime. And so there's no shortage of reasons why we kind of felt as if policing staffing levels could have important consequences for racial disparities and things like homicide and arrest patterns. So we were able to kind of leverage this larger literature in order to be able to kind of say something meaningful about it in an empirical way. Yeah. So let's talk more about why we didn't know more <laughs> about these effects <laughs> by race. It seems like such an important question, an important issue given the policy context. It's certainly something that you know, has been on people's minds for a while. But you're right that, you know, this this huge literature looking at the effect of police on crime has really focused on measuring the overall effect, the average effect across everybody in all communities. So why don't we know more than we do? Were the challenges primarily data related or do you think it's something else? Well, I, to be honest with you, I kind of think of it might be a combination of 
one might just be a blind spot of the literature. And so, you know, there's no shortage of work out there that kind of takes a look at these more aggregate patterns. But as somebody, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, that, you know, focuses primarily on race, you know, I tend to see that this exists in other areas of the literature as well. So let me give an example. So gun control policy. Uh, we've had no shortage of, of papers generally that kind of revolve around natural experiments, around changes in gun laws that you know, tend to look at the impact of, say, background checks or uh, concealed carry law and their impact on homicide victimization and suicide. Almost all of those papers, you know, obviously, they, we have some very kind of established scholars that are, have kind of tackled those papers and worked through those papers. You know, all those papers kind of focus on these things in an aggregate way. But for me, I tend to look at some of the descriptives. I tend to kind of harken back to that Becker model. And I just say to myself, well, you know, when we take a look at the descriptive evidence, there's no shortage of evidence doesn't suggest that much of the patterns that we see in robberies, much of the patterns that we see in homicide have some type of racial element too. We live in largely segregated society. And so we would expect for the social interactions that might generate say, homicide and homicidal interactions would tend to be a bit more personal. Our robberies, which tend to be a little bit more impersonal, could lead to the complexion of those interactions being a bit different. And therefore, maybe we should be thinking about race. The same thing is true for gun control policy and some of the other things I mentioned. And so, you know, why exactly we don't necessarily have that is, I think it's probably a question I would toss back to the larger literature. But I do feel as if the kind of underlying social interactions and how they're kind of influencing the types of crime waves that we see over space and time is something that we should all be thinking about when conducting this work. Yeah, I think you're completely right that this is, you know, this is one reason we need a diverse set of people at the table with all the questions that they might, you know, that they think are important asking in the research questions and doing the research. And it's probably something that just hadn't been front of mind for the type of person who is an economist, um, you know, usually in the past. I do think that like as I'm thinking through like the data that exists, we're always a bit constrained with the data. Like clearly identification is not as much of a challenge here because there is this large literature that has like figured this out, right? And you're gonna we're gonna talk more about the strategies you're using later. And so that, you know, they're kind of paths forward there. On the data, I think people probably have worried about the extent to which race is sort of selectively reported, especially for crimes that aren't always reported to police. So one way you're going to handle that is by focusing on homicides. So that brings us to data. So why don't you talk about the data you're using for this? So that's another kind of very good point, right? That I should probably highlight in, in, or as a caveat to kind of what I just said. So when it comes down to understanding the importance of race and, and policing and of the, all of these other things, a, a big part of that has to deal with like, well, one, what is the nature of your empirical design, right? So if you're going to focus on thousands of agencies, I imagine if you're going to focus on even something as well-reported as homicide, you might not necessarily have the complete data necessary in order to be able to answer that exact question across racial lines. That certainly is a point well taken. I think it also kind of depends on the question that you're asking as well with respect to crime. And so you made the very astute point that homicide is something that we have a better kind of you know, you know, grapple over, right? And so we generally have two different sources of homicide data. One comes from reports from law enforcement agencies themselves, in which they are recording much of this information in the Uniform Crime Reports. And also, you can find it within the Supplementary Homicide Reports, which you know, are incident-level data. But much of that is kind of reported, self-reported, or reported to the police, or reported by the police. And so as a result, you know, there might be some concerns about the nature of, of the coding of race within some data, depending on how large of a sample you work with. 
Now, one of the good things that we can kind of lean on is the fact that we also have death certificate data, right? So we also know from your local health department or your state health department and subsequently the CDC and, and other agencies that we can get a sense of trends in homicide rates according to these death certificates. And as a result, we can kind of look at the series over time and some of the work that has looked at these series over time tends to suggest that these are pretty closely tracking one another, these two measures. And so as a result, we tend to focus on things like homicide because of the fact that it's better reported in terms of on the victimization front. When it comes down to other crimes, it really just depends on kind of what it is that you're going to focus on, right? So when it comes down to, say, motor vehicle theft, because of insurance policies, people tend to report motor vehicle theft more accurately than maybe some other crimes or things that we don't necessarily get a reporting on all the time, like assault. So we do focus on homicide victimization exclusively. We do use the data sources that I kind of mentioned before, right? The FBI supplementary homicide reports. We focus exclusively on a sample of about 242 cities from the, I want to say about the early 80s until more recent years. And so in doing so, we're able to construct homicide victimization rates at the city level per 100,000. What we also use, and as I kind of alluded to before, is that we need measures of police employment. And so in order to get a sense of police employment, we're going to pull from two different sources. One source that we pull from is going to be the U.S. Census Annual Survey of Government. And we're also going to pull from the FBI law enforcement officers killed and assaulted or the LEOCA data. And so these data provide point-in-time measures of the full-time sworn officers. Again, we measure that at the city level. And so in doing so, we have two complementary measures of police employment that we can kind of use both you know, as a check, but also as some of the as part of an empirical approach to kind of credibly estimate the impact of police staffing levels on many of the outcomes that we're interested in. So we're going to include some of those data. We're also going to include data from the COPS program. And so with the COPS grants, we're going to have information on the size of the grants. Uh, we're going to have information on you know, other aspects of the application process. So whether it was hiring, non-hiring, those types of things. And finally, we're going to include a bunch of census data. And also we're going to include enforcement activity data from the FBI Uniform Crime Reports. So within these data, backing up and thinking about the enforcement, about the arrest data. So the arrest data we're pulling from the uniform crime reports, we're going to focus on pretty much two different levels of arrests that exist. So we're going to focus on indexed arrests, which kind of refer to arrests for indexed crimes or very serious crime that the FBI tracks and reports very closely. So robbery and aggravated assault, murder, et cetera. We're also going to take a look at what we call quality life arrests. And so uh, these quality of life arrests kind of consist of low-level misdemeanor offenses that you know uh, might consist of disorderly conduct or drug possession, generally offenses that police have a great deal of discretion on over. And we can kind of view as perhaps being victimless in some ways. Not to say that people desire these types of offenses within their neighborhood, but uh, we are going to have those two measures of arrest that we're going to look at as kind of like primary outcomes. And finally, I should also add that we're going to include measures of municipal expenditures. And so with, with municipal expenditures, what we're going to be able to do and, and controlling for overall expenditures within our models, uh, we're going to be able to provide estimates of the impact of a marginal officer on homicide, on these low-level quality of life arrests, on these index arrests. But our measures are going to actually reflect the historical opportunity cost of investing in police manpower versus something else. So we actually see this as a kind of critical aspect of the analysis because it allows for us to contribute to a very real kind of debate that's taking place with respect to defund, right? So a big kind of concern with defund is the nature of, okay, will we reallocate X amount of the policing budget to some other agency, 
you know, we would be in a better position or perhaps we hope to be in a better position. Now, we can't answer that question exactly, but we can speak to those historical trade-offs uh, that I mentioned before. So that's pretty much covers like the nature of the data. All the data are, for the most part are pretty much, uh, you know, available publicly. Yeah, so just to say that last piece back to you in slightly different words, so you're going to be looking at the effect of spending a marginal dollar or hiring a marginal police officer holding constant what the local budget is. That is correct. Great. Okay. And then can you say a little bit more about what quality of life offenses are? Give some examples. Yeah, sure thing. So I gave a few examples. So disorderly conduct is one. Liquor law violations are, you know, kind of serve as a, another type of quality of life offense. Curfew, loitering, suspicious persons, you know, these are things for which it might be a bit more difficult to identify a given victim for, and for which you know the police can kind of make use their own discretion about whether or not to uh, make an arrest for that offense. And so, one thing that we kind of like about being able to look at quality life arrests is because, you know, contrary to much of the earlier literature I mentioned before, we were able to kind of add a new element or a new wrinkle to kind of understanding the nature of these quality life arrests. Because on the one hand, Perhaps these arrests, you know, might you know lead to a fine, maybe even a light jail sentence, or in or neither. On the other hand, it can have important criminogenic effects, and so you know, by continuously going to court for these smaller offenses, perhaps it ends up you know entangling other parts of one's criminal history, and as a result, maybe it leads to incarceration, or it could be something that could contribute to a larger aspect of public safety. So. We want to be able to account for this, but we want to have some type of conversation about what exactly are the police doing uh, when you do increase police force size. And you know, certainly we want them to be making arrests for these more serious crimes like murder and rape and robbery. But we also want to get a sense of how they're treating these discretionary offenses because I think it can open up the doors for a larger conversation on what the police are and are not doing, how productive they are in increasing public safety, at least with this mission. Awesome. Okay, and so remind us again the main outcome measures then that you're going to be focusing on here. Yeah, so the main outcomes that we're going to focus on is we're going to focus on homicide victimization, and we're going to exclusively focus on non-Hispanic Black and non-Hispanic white homicide victims. And the reason for that is that uh, within the data themselves, as we kind of you know discussed before, uh, there can be some quality issues. Those issues tend to appear more for the coding of Hispanics within the supplementary homicide reports. And as a result, we decided to say, you know what, you know, we're going to just focus on these two groups because they tend to be better reported. And over time, you do see changes in how Hispanics are kind of coded within the data in ways that might not necessarily be consistent with other kind of demographic information that we might have. So we tend to focus on that. Now, with the arrest outcomes, we are actually going to, again, focus on index arrests, those more serious crimes that I mentioned before, in addition to the quality of life arrest. Now, with the arrest data, we cannot focus on ethnicity. We cannot account for Hispanic ethnicity to be more specific. But in thinking about this, one thing that we do know from the larger social science literature is that you know, for black arrestees or for other measures that are kind of similar to this situation, we tend to not see much change in how race is kind of reported among black victims or black arrestees. Now, when it comes down for the white arrestees, then it, it differs a little bit. It could differ by region, depending on how many, you know, what the Hispanic, you know, representation is within that given region. And so as a result, you know, you know, the white arrest rates that we end up construction could have some Hispanics and they could not. But I think if anything, that's to our favor in how we're kind of going to be able to kind of speak to where these uh, effects on arrest are going. Yeah. So if we think of the white arrest rates and probably even to some extent, the white homicide rates as being sort of some mix of, of white and Hispanic that should probably bias you toward 
finding results that are closer to the Black estimates if we think of Hispanic residents as being sort of somewhere in the middle in terms of how they interact with police officers. That is exactly correct. Yes. All right. And so, and you also mentioned you're using data from 242 large U.S. cities. Tell us a little bit about your sample. What do those cities look like and how do they compare with other places? So for our sample, you know, in focusing on 242 cities, one thing I'll note is that our sample, when you look at some of the earlier cop literature, they kind of use a much larger sample of cities, right? So they're including a lot more smaller cities within their sample. For us, we're going to include focus on these large cities because we're able to kind of measure these things, all of these kind of variables of interest to us in incredible ways. But in also in doing so, we feel as if we can kind of speak to this race issue a bit more closely as we kind of discussed before. And so within our sample of 242 cities, it looks, you know, it's obviously fairly urban. I believe, you know, the number of homicide victims, obviously there's a, a large you know, disparity there. I think there's about 139, I think, black victims on average within our sample. We wait by population in 1980 compared to 64 for whites. We also see a difference in clearance rates. Clearance rates are a bit higher for whites. And also these cities are generally maybe have a larger black representation. So I think maybe about at least on average, uh, 24% are black compared to 48% white. And so in looking at these measures, we can kind of say to ourselves, we're speaking to a very large urban environment throughout the country. All right. So walk us through your empirical approach. How do you measure the causal effects of police hiring on these various crime outcomes you're going to be looking at? No, that's great. So, I mean, one way in which we do so is kind of, you know, it's pretty much leaning on the literature that I mentioned before with respect to the, the COPS grants. And so what we're going to do is that we want to be able to kind of have in order, if we think simultaneity bias is a problem or if there's an omitted variable, we want to be able to have some sort of variation in police staffing levels from one year to the next across agencies that can be explained by you know, being awarded a COPS grant, right? And so in this way, what we end up doing is that we kind of employ an instrumental variable strategy similar to the rest of the literature. What we end up doing is that we say to ourselves, okay, can we understand the impact of hiring one more officer due to being awarded you know, an officer through the COPS grant? And can we examine that impact on, say, homicide or arrest? In doing so, what we end up also doing is that we also add a few controls for much of the application process. And so as a result, by adding controls for the application process, you know, whether or not they applied, the agency in question applied for some type of technology-inspired grant or something of that nature, we're able to say, okay, well, maybe there are certain you know, characteristics that are associated with those interests that allow for us to control for things like quality. We also are able to control, we're obviously going to have some fixed effects in there, and that's going to allow for us, conditional on those fixed effects, that's going to allow for us to kind of be able to kind of exploit this COPS grant as plausibly exogenous variation. Now, what we also do, and this is kind of another, you know, study by uh, Aaron and his co-author and Justin that I mentioned before, you know, basically, they say to ourselves, okay, well, we might not have an experiment. Well, what we can do is say, well, let's take the two police employment measures that I mentioned, the one that's attributable to the ASG and then the other one that's uh, coming from the LEOPA data. And so, you know, if we believe that there might be an issue of measurement error, and I do kind of go through the paper and go through an example in New York where there was just like this huge change from one year to the next that doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. They say, all right, if classical measurement error is indeed an issue, then what we can do is that we can use one of the variables as an instrument for the other in order to be able to explain changes in police staffing levels within our sample and their impact on homicide and arrest patterns. And so in doing that, we're able to kind of provide complementary 
identification strategies. And if they're close, if the estimates are close, and they will show in the paper that they are, then that allows for us to have a bit more faith in the manner in which you know, we believe policing staffing levels are working. And, and so we also kind of see this as an important contribution as well. Yeah, it is really interesting that there are these two approaches and you know, they're for so long, especially in the economics literature on policing. And part of the reason there's such a large literature is there has been such a focus on finding a good instrument or finding a good natural experiment to identify the causal effect of, of police on crime. Because there were all these early papers, right, that showed like, well, if you just look at the correlation, it actually looks like police cause more crime because you know, police departments tend to hire more police officers when crime's going up. And so you wind up finding this positive correlation. And folks looked at that and said, well, that could just be because, you know, it, it goes the other way. There's a simultaneity bias you're talking about. And so all this energy went into finding these interesting instruments and stuff. All the, you know, let's use the COPS grants. You have to get funding first or whatever else. And then Aaron and Justin came along and was like, well, you know, it's mostly measurement error. Yeah. <laughs> so we could just use an IV to correct for the measurement error, which is also really cool and fancy. But I do think it's just fascinating that we basically get the same result. So yeah, so you're going to be using both of those approaches. And I think if I recall from what you say in the paper, you're basically going to find the same results. Yeah, for the most part. Now, one thing I will say is that you know because the COPS came about in the mid-90s, we have to kind of shorten the sample period that we work with. But uh, when you restrict the sample period, depending on the outcome, they tend to be very, very similar, if not statistically similar. And tend to, at the very least, they provide very consistent qualitative stories about the results. And so. We think that's some good guidance for how to conceptualize or some maybe having resolved in some of these larger arguments that you just mentioned before about the nature of how credible are some of these uh, identification strategies that the literature has been leaning on. All right. So let's talk about the results. What do you find is the effect of police hiring on homicide rates for white and black residents? Yeah, so basically what we end up finding in kind of focusing on homicide, you know, we and they'll find that the marginal officer abates about 0.06 to about 0.1 homicides, depending on which model you use. You know, another way of thinking about that is that in order to save one life, it requires the hiring of about 10 to 17 more officers on average. And so in that way, one thing that's interesting is that while you look at you know, the estimates across Black victims and white victims, you know, statistically, they're pretty much the same, right? And so the marginal officer seems to save just as many Black lives as white lives. But one thing that we kind of noted, you know, already, you know, based on our sample and also what's true of the country just in general, is that Black Americans make up a smaller proportion of the population. And so why don't we also kind of look at these results in per capita terms as well, right? And so we want to be able to kind of benchmark our estimates to the population in order to kind of address the issue that I mentioned before. And in doing so, we actually noticed that the gains are about twice as large, the gains in homicide victimization, that is, I mean, in terms of their reduction are about twice as large for Black victims on a per capita basis. And so one thing that's kind of interesting to note here is that while, you know, I think within economics, we tend to, I think we've more so kind of gravitated towards the idea that police do have an important role in, in reducing violent crime. But when you step outside of economics, this has actually been a point in which, you know, many people seem to not necessarily be cognizant of. And so one thing that kind of takes that idea a step further is the fact that not only do police reduce violent crime, but they also reduce the disparities in violent crime that are just so crucial to life expectancy and other, you know, kind of, you know, societal considerations that we have when it comes to homicide. So I do think that's a pretty important finding, both within the economics of crime literature and at large. Yeah, I totally agree. And those effect sizes are per year. Is that the way to think about it? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I mean, those effects are just 
huge. I mean, I know the literature and it's still, every time I see an <laughs> estimate like that, it's like, that's a lot. I mean, the idea that you know every officer you hire, you'd have to hire 10 to 17 officers to save one life. The other way to think about it, I guess, is like, if you hire one officer over the course of like a 10-year span of his being on the force, he's going to save a life for that's sure. Right. And that is just fascinating. And it's kind of steps outside of you know what people's original considerations. Like a lot of times when we're having this kind of larger kind of police reform debate, they would say, well, you know, police actually spend most of their time, you know, in their car, you know, like on you know, yeah. waiting for the radio to go off <laughs> or something like Buying that. Buying donuts. Yeah. yeah, eating donuts. In fact, <laughs> I'll kind of comment on a bit later, but you know, one thing that two of my collaborators, Daniel Flaherty and Columbia and Vachi Seti at Barnard said was that, you know, you could even put cops out on the street and they could just have a donut eating effect. They're just eating donuts and they can still (laughs) solve crime. So, you know, I think that it's kind of important to know that, you know, they do have an important role in addressing homicide victimization. And that is kind of a very important consideration I'm not sure is discussed enough when talking about the role of the police and what it should be. Yeah. It makes all the conversations much more complicated if you're not happy with the way police are behaving. Okay, next set of results. So you you also consider the effect of police hiring on arrests for serious crimes. These are these index crimes you mentioned before. So what do you find there? When we look at, you know, again, same measure, what we end up finding for index crimes is that actually arrests for serious index crimes fall with larger police forces, you know, which many people kind of scratch their head over. And you know, I'll kind of give a sense of how I kind of interpret this in a second. But, you know, basically the marginal officer makes about one to two fewer index arrests on average. And one thing that kind of makes it interesting, in thinking about arrests, arrests are going to be a function of policing strategies. They're also going to be a function of crime that exists, right? Or what or perceived crime. And so we need something to be able to kind of benchmark this to. And so what we do is that we also say, you know what? Well, we don't have a race-specific measure for this, but let's also take a look at the index crimes themselves. So not the index arrests, but the index crimes themselves. And so as a result, we end up seeing that the marginal officer actually abates about 18 to 24 index crimes. And so you have an average decline in arrests for index offenses. You have an average decline in, in index crimes that's associated with you know, expanding the police force size. And so you know, one way to kind of look at this is that it doesn't seem as if you know, police are kind of arresting their way out some of these public safety gains that seem to be taking place throughout our sample period. What they seem to be doing, though, is that perhaps there's a deterrence effect that might be associated with increasing the police force size. And so when we disaggregate our results across a number of different types of index crimes, what you end up seeing is that you know many of the index arrests that are kind of being reduced are things that you would think, or at least would make logical sense, kind of associated with you know police having a visible and physical presence in greater numbers. And so reduction of like property-related offenses theft and things of that nature, motor vehicle theft. These are all things that were were being reduced the most when it comes down to increasing police force size, according to our estimates. One thing that I think is also interesting, again, is the mere fact that, well, we're a race paper, right? And so in thinking about the racial disparities, one thing that's interesting is that the reduction of arrests is about four to six times greater for Black Americans. And so if you have this decline in crime and you also have these decline in racial disparities and serious index arrests, perhaps because of the fact that many of these arrests are also accompanied by these lengthy prison sentences, right? Because these are very serious crimes. Perhaps we're also kind of reining in the reach of the incarceral state. And as a result, perhaps we're having some, by increasing police force size, we're also kind of reducing incarceration disparities at the same time. So, you know, that's something that we think is kind of an interesting kind of takeaway from our results on, on these index arrests and index crimes themselves and the extent to which police force size 
can also kind of reduce perhaps the incarceration rate of the criminal justice system. Yeah, I agree. That's super interesting. And so now to get to the, the flip side <laughs> of that possible benefit, you consider the effect of police hiring on arrests for these lower level quality of life offenses. So tell us about that result. Yeah, so one thing that we obviously also do is look at these low level kind of misdemeanor offenses or quality of life offenses. And what we do know is that the marginal officer seems to make about seven to 22 additional quality of life arrests, depending on which model we employ. And so one thing that I think I would probably note thinking about those quality of life arrests is the fact that, well, most of the disparities that kind of exist in these additional quality of life arrests seem to be taking place among liquor law violations and also uh, drug possession arrests. And in thinking about the racial aspect of it, I think the effect for Blacks, at least for liquor law violation and drug possession arrests, about three times larger than that of whites. And so, you know, obviously, you know, there are a number of different kinds of considerations. I think at least three that I can think of off the top of my head. The first one is that, well, quality life arrests, they could be important. They couldn't contribute to the larger kind of breach of the criminal justice system uh, by bringing people in for court appearances and also perhaps tying them up with a former criminal history. And that way, you know, these things could end up being something that's considered a, a very important cost and consideration. I think a second thing that we want to kind of keep in mind, though, is that because this paper kind of works at a, a more aggregate level, we don't really kind of speak to preferences, right? So we're not necessarily putting any structural preferences. And as a result, it could be the case that many of the Black communities within our sample are just demanding, you know, that police do something about liquor laws, violations, and drug possession. And so it, it could be that these are things that it could be desirable. Right. And so we don't want to rule that out. And one thing that I also will kind of say is that on the flip side, we're not able to, at least within this design, ascertain whether or not these quality life arrests have any deep and meaningful impact on public safety. Now, what I will say is that just based on the literature and a number of studies or the policy case studies that we've kind of used, whether it be the Floyd case and the ending of stop question and frisk as we know it, there's just so many different instances in which we kind of see that these quality life arrests or these low-level arrests might not necessarily have you know, a great deal of productivity behind them. And so we don't want to necessarily say whether or not our estimates speak to you know, the usefulness of these quality life arrests, but we do kind of want to make all three of these considerations known. So lots of considerations, lots of potential <laughs> caveats. But as you sort of look at this set of results... What do you think we're learning here about how you know these effects on arrests or what we're, what they're telling us about police behavior? What are we learning about how they're having such a big effect on homicides? What's your takeaway? So I guess my takeaway is more so that you know one thing that we did not find any evidence for. We didn't find that increasing police force size in either of our models seemed to lead to any meaningful impact on uh, clearance rates, and so. Now, clearance rates, obviously, we mean the ability of the, of the police to kind of find, you know, arrest someone that might be responsible for an offense or maybe convict them. I mean, depending on you know, who you speak to about their definition of a clearance rate. But for us, the ability to kind of clear cases within the SHR data is, you know, pretty much our measure, but we don't find any evidence for that. So it doesn't seem as if the police are any more productive in the solving of crimes. And this kind of is something that I think is very consistent uh, with a favorite book of mine, Ghetto Side by Jill Levy that kind of speaks to these very difficult homicides, often in Black neighborhoods. I believe she was focused on Watts. But you know, you have to really kind of get boots on the ground immediately. And there's a great deal of kind of uh, human capital that kind of is associated with being able to kind of get through these uh, homicides and clearing them, and also the priorities of departments. And so what we can say 
is that, you know, it seems as if the police force size is working through a very kind of sensible mechanism through many of the arrests that we see, right? So when we look at the arrests, they, these are things that if a police were on the street, they would be able to stop or perhaps, you know, deter. And so in that way, we feel as if perhaps this isn't necessarily police becoming more productive. We can't necessarily say this precisely, but we don't see, at least from our evidence, that police are becoming more productive. If anything, they're kind of deterring future crime through their presence. And so uh, if we can achieve homicide reduction, both in, you know, in overall terms, but also in terms of racial disparities, we can also rein in the kind of the impersonal reach of the state. And if we can do this primarily to deterrence, I actually think that this is something that could end up being a very important policy lever. And it's one that many municipalities already kind of lean on when they decide, hey, I want to do something about crime within our neighborhood. And kind of creating a holistic picture of this, we do feel as if there's some important takeaways from this research that could be very vital to kind of understanding exactly how we should define the police's role moving forward. And so what should policymakers do with this information? What are the policy implications here? You're finding some you know, deterrent effect of the police that maybe they're sitting in their cars eating donuts. Maybe they're walking around arresting people for drinking on the sidewalk through you know, a bunch of stuff. They're just like being there seems to reduce serious crime, especially serious violent crimes. But there are all these concerns about communities being over-policed and people being harassed and being arrested for stuff that maybe we shouldn't care about. So policymakers that are, you know, thinking about this and have been involved in this conversation for the past year plus, what should they take from your results? So I would say first that those concerns are warranted and certainly we should acknowledge those concerns in full, right? Because we want to make sure that, you know, we don't view policing as a panacea. We think of it as one particular policy lever that is of interest. And there are certain things that, you know, we have to hold constant, right? So there's certain things that you know, the quality, maybe certain aspects of quality with policing and also managerial kind of directives and, uh, and structure. Those are all things that matter deeply in terms of how police forces operate. And certainly one thing that I think that the literature overall is starting to do is that they're starting to kind of open up that black box for policing and being able to figure out exactly what's going on. To the extent that policymakers are kind of, you know, collaborating with more researchers and academics and uh, being able to kind of give us the ability to kind of work collaboratively on using more granular data to answer some very important questions about bias and other things, we should definitely do that. And it's certainly, you know, something that should be a priority for policymakers. What I will say is we don't necessarily kind of see, uh, you know, that these benefits are always kind of shared across different types of neighborhoods and, you know, in a director's cut, so to speak, of our paper. We did kind of look at this across the uh, percent black population distribution and kind of notice that the top quartile uh, we're not necessarily observing many of the benefits associated, you know, with increasing police force size. That is, you know, homicide victimization reduction. But we are still seeing many of the quote unquote cost. That is, you know, more index arrests, still, you know, more index crimes. In addition to that, uh, we also still see more quality life arrests as well. And so, uh, to that extent, you know, there still needs to be a very important and intense debate about how policing practices are carried out within black communities throughout the country. I think about policing that, you know, kind of took place within Ferguson, Missouri, and the DOJ's report, you know, around Ferguson. And so, you know, we don't want the police, you know, to have an increased presence and also to be using traffic violations as, say, you know, as revenue, right? That doesn't necessarily, that's not within the realms of what we think of when it comes down to improving public safety. One thing that we also want to consider is that to the extent that 
there's an increase in civilian and police encounters, there's always the possibility that there could be use of force implemented as well. And so we definitely don't want that. And if we kind of use one of my co-authors estimates that about 2.5% of arrests lead to police use of force, uh, then our estimates suggest that you know police expansion necessary to evade one homicide would probably lead to about seven to 10 use of force incidents of which about four to five would involve a black civilian. So we want to be very careful in kind of how we think about you know, the police's role beyond you know, the effects that they might have on homicide victimization and other considerations with respect to for enforcement activity. Yeah, and just to build a little bit on what you were talking about with the black box of policing, which I agree has been, <laughs> I think like we're just getting to the point where over the last few years where researchers have had access to the kind of data we would need to be able to talk about what's inside that black box. And But I think the public conversations about policing often assume that we have to sort of take or leave this box, right? We get this black box of policing and we either have more of it or we have less of it. And those are our options. And I think, you know, what I certainly would love, and it sounds like you would like also, is for the conversation to shift more toward, like, can we improve policing? Like, there are these benefits that come from police. There are also these potential costs. And are there ways to get the benefits with fewer of the costs? And that's something we just don't know yet. But it feels to me like we should be able to. Like, it feels like no, everything absolutely. can be improved, right? Absolutely. And I think that a lot of times we hear these larger arguments about, Oh, it's incrementalist and incrementalist. Well, unfortunately, I think increments are just kind of within the reach of, of public policy. If it were the case that we can improve, you know, neighborhoods through these kind of larger investments and in other types of, of social services, and we knew this evidence, then I would be all behind it as well. And I think that we should continue to kind of examine the role, you know, of you know other you know agencies and other interventions because you know what? Again, the police are not a panacea. However, we don't know that experiment. We have not seen that experiment of you know what exactly happens if we reallocate you know a large and significant amount of funding away from the police to some other agencies. That requires a very deep monetary commitment. It also requires a deep transformation of the police and the agencies in question. And so I don't necessarily see it as a straightforward conversation, but I'm hoping that many of us will be kind of more enlightened about these conversations. A doctor of students might be listening to this and say, you know what, I have an idea that Morgan isn't thinking about and more power to him. I can't wait to see the working paper. But I think that in many ways, we have to be very careful in kind of how we think about the role of police and whether we should scale it back or not. Because at the end of the day, we do find important evidence that the police seem to have an important role through increases in labor and reducing homicide victimization disparity, something that is of the utmost important to all of us. And so to the extent that pulling back the police in many parts of the country could lead to increases uh, and homicide, then that wouldn't necessarily be a good thing. And in many ways, as Aaron pointed out in his work, as I pointed out in my own work in, on gun control policy, places like St. Louis, places like Baltimore and elsewhere, I think that they would actually be arguing that they just, they're just not enough policing resources. And I don't think this is just a superfluous union complaint. I actually think this is something that is actually real. And when you compare that to the levels of gun violence that might be existing in some of those same neighborhoods, they might have a point. So that's something that we want to consider. I think the other thing that I will say is that there's an important divergence sometimes in what the police do and what the community needs and wants. And so that divergence in the perceived public safety needs of Black communities in particular is something that has been a thorn within the larger discussion of, of, of law enforcement reform. In fact, in one of my, another book that I really enjoy was Black Silent Majority by Michael Fortner at the CUNY Graduate Center. And so he kind of writes about the experience within Harlem about you know dealing with the heroin epidemic in the late 20th century. And so there seemed to have been 
the very important differences between how the community thought that many of these kind of increases in crime, increases in drug utilization should be addressed, and eventually how the state got involved. And to the extent that this, you know, it started to spill over in the suburbs, or people were worried that it was spill over into the suburbs, the state stepped in and we ended up kind of increasing the reach of the incarceral state, you know, going back to the early 1970s. And so these are very cautionary tales, and it's very important to kind of acknowledge the role of the community and being able to kind of shape these larger law enforcement forces. And I think that sometimes that's a point that could kind of get lost up in the larger literature. So I, I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up as well. Yeah. So I know this paper is pretty new, but have any other papers related to this topic come out since you first started working on the study? Yeah. So, I mean, there's been some work that you know hasn't necessarily been officially put out in the ether yet, so I won't necessarily comment on any other work by maybe some rock stars by the name of Jennifer Doliak, Amanda Agan, and uh, Anna Harvey that's also commented <laughs> on the role of some of these kind of low-level you know, offenses and the prosecution of those low-level offenses. And I think that's kind of contributing to this larger conversation about how do we kind of go about disorder policing and prosecution now that we know a little bit more about their effects, right? So we've had you know, 20, 30 plus years of kind of evidence to kind of speak to you know, how youthful are these things. And I brought up the stop, question, and frisk and the Floyd ruling kind of uh, case earlier. You know, these are things that I, I feel as if are pointing us in the right direction about how to kind of shape policing as we move forward. And what's the research frontier? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about going forward? Yeah, so I mean, I think a big kind of consideration, again, is more so kind of delving into the nature in which kind of racism is kind of driving some of the things that we see, right? Again, you know, I kind of call this a quasi-experimental reduced form, non-reduced form paper in the sense that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, there's certain things that we can certainly point to in terms of policy levers and being police employment. But there are obviously a lot of things that, you know, kind of I mentioned before under the hood that we need to continue to think about, right? And so whether the police are kind of strategically kind of allocating their resources to Black communities, because let's just say that when we speak about crime rates, we don't necessarily know exactly what a crime rate is in many ways, right? We know about homicide rates for sure, but when it comes down to crime rates, there's a credible amount of imprecision which we're able to kind of speak to these things because for some offenses, it's going to be somewhat driven by first the demand for policing and also uh, the policing response. And so as a result, you know, maybe we use the homicide victimization rates across blacks and whites as a signal. Maybe, you know, it just ends up being the case that, you know, police chiefs receive a lot of pressure to address crime in a significant way, and particularly homicide. So they use homicide as a signal and they allocate resources that way. We don't necessarily know if that's true or not, but we, it's something we definitely need to explore because, again, when it comes down to kind of understanding the nature of policing and, and exactly what type of policing different communities need, we have to have a finer understanding of perhaps the theoretical foundations and mechanisms that might be responsible what you know the equilibrium responses in, in policing that we're seeing at the, at the end of the day. My guest today has been Morgan Williams Jr. from Barnard College. Morgan, thanks so much for talking with me. Thanks again, Jen. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoyed the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Haley Greasaver. 
Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.